If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML is rolling. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. What do you think about this story? I saw this just before I came on the air, and I'm 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 kind of loving this story. Although, if I was on the victim side of this, I might not. A Colorado judge has brought the hammer down on a plain, a defendant, I guess, who lost a lawsuit. Had to pay twenty three thousand five hundred dollars in a settlement or in a in a judgment after a lawsuit. And so this person decided, you know what? I am mad at the person who sued me. I do not agree with this. And so he delivered the $23,500 in loose coins that weighed three tons <laughs> and, and didn't just get loose coins. He had the coins all wrapped. You know, you go to the bank and you get them. He went to the trouble of loosening them all and just to mix them up, just to make it even more difficult for the person who was getting this giant box now of three tons of coins. <laughs> I mean, I, I do like the, the snarkiness of it in a certain way. If I was the person receiving three tons of coins, I'm reasonably certain I would not be happy about this. I grant you that. I'm not, uh, not pretending otherwise, but you know, I mean, all things considered. Nobody got hurt. A lot of coins were unwrapped. A lot more coins back in circulation, I guess, into the, into the money system. But yes, what a, um, what a, a monetary equivalent of a middle finger, not only to the person who sued and beat you, but also to the judge who decided against you. That is, uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of funny. Welcome to the show today. Uh, speaking of funny, we got a few things. I don't know if they're all funny today. We got a bunch of stuff that is, uh, that we're going to be getting into, including the idea of some restaurants now charging a bad parenting fee. What do you think of the idea? You go to a restaurant, there's a family at the table next to you. The kids are out of control, just lousy, cruddy behaved kids. And so the restaurant, because it's affecting everyone else can charge them a bad parenting fee. Good idea or really bad idea. We'll talk about that one first off today in just a few minutes. We're going to be talking about sober, curious people, which is leading to a whole new bevy of alcohol-free drinks. People who have decided, you know, I've just had enough, but I still like the idea, but I don't want to drink the alcohol. That's uh, that is a new, well, it's not a new thing, I suppose, but it's a, an expanding thing. Uh, transit strike, we'll be discussing the possibility of that coming up. Uh, we will be discussing the idea of removing King Charles III from the oath of allegiance in this country. This seems to be something that may be gaining some traction. This is a step towards, I would assume, a step towards stepping away from the monarchy, even though it's a little more complicated than just saying that because of our constitution. But what would you think about getting rid of that one? Uh, we'll talk about Hamilton's construction boom. We'll talk about whether or not, you know, as Doug Ford is undoing some of the decisions he's made, Greenbelt particularly, sh there's a suggestion that he, here's an idea, here's an idea that he should also look at to undo another thing he did, get rid of the strong mayor powers that mayors around the province have now, including Andrea Horvath here in Hamilton. Just dump that one too. That was an idea that not everybody loves. I, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure at this point how 
it will look or how it's going to work. Most mayors have thus far, most have taken the position that, you know, I look, I don't want to be the one who is trying to dictate everything. I'm still going to come and take the word of council and take votes of council, but you know, how long does that last? Is there a mayor out there somewhere who finally just decides I am going to flex every muscle that I possibly have within the chain of office that I possess? I don't know that, I don't know too many people are going to love the idea of strong mayors when it is finally really brought to power. Well, apparently, Scott, uh, Bonnie Crombie actually used her strong mayor powers recently. Uh, oh, there have been a number of uses. Yeah, there, no, there's been a bunch of times, a number of times, not a bunch. There's been a number of times, you're right, when it has been used, but it's been sporadic. There's been nobody who yet that I've heard of or that I've seen has showed up as mayor and went, guess who's running the show now and not listening to anyone else. That has not happened. I, technically, theoretically, it kind of could I just don't see, I, I'll tell you why I don't see that ever happening. We'll get into this later in the show. I'll tell you why I don't see that happening is because the one thing, if you're a mayor in this, in our system right now, and things go totally awry in council, if council makes a decision and it just blows up, the one thing as mayor, you can always do is say, Hey, wasn't me. I just have one vote. As soon as you're the one who decides to call all the shots, if that thing does not work out, there is no one else responsible other than you. Anyway, we'll get to that later in the show as well. Here's the question for you. There is a restaurant in Georgia that has now begun something that seems to, uh, a couple others seems to have jumped on the idea of this. They've clearly seen it and liked it. The idea is that if you go to the restaurant and your kids misbehave and act like little goofballs during dinner, they will tag you with a bad parenting fee on your bill. And it's not small. This place in Georgia charging 50 bucks. If you get an extra $50 charge because your kids are wild in the restaurant and distracting everyone else. And the other part about this story that's so funny is there, there is no seemingly laid out criteria. It's just the restaurant decided your kids were, were being jerks. So you're going to get hit with 50 bucks. Is this. Something that people would love more often than not, or is this something that people are going to shake their head at and say, these restaurant owners are out of their minds. Alyssa Freeman is a PR and pop culture expert, joins us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. I love the story, Scott. Yeah, I, I do too, because I think that our opinion on this probably changes depending on the day and where we are and who's sitting next to us at that moment. You know what? Listen, uh, I have a daughter and, you know, and you can ask my mom, you know, my mother will say, I never let you kids run around a restaurant, but my kid didn't run around a restaurant either. And I have been to restaurants where people think it's their own living room and the kids are yelling and screaming and throwing food and they don't seem to care. They don't seem to care. And sometimes it's this large family. Sometimes it's one family unit. But I mean, is there have we, have we certainly, sorry, I can't speak. Have we just thrown manners out the window? And I think that number one, manners are something that are definitely hard to come by. Number two, this is, you know, you have to set a good precedent and example for your kids when you go out for dinner and that there is a way to behave. And thirdly, think about the restaurant. You know, when a family leaves that has just basically come in and eaten and destroyed the place, there is food everywhere. They've got to spend an extra 15, 20 minutes scraping the sticky stuff or whatever it is off the seats, off the chairs, off the floor. 
it's actually taking advantage saying, well, at least I'll go out to eat, have my kids eat there, do what they want, and then let the restaurant clean up. And I'm sorry, I just can't condone that behavior. And of course, there are some people who don't like it because they're obviously the perpetrators. But I think, you know, people come out to go out to eat to have an experience, whether it's at a family restaurant, whether it's at a, you know, high-end restaurant, whether it's at a fast casual restaurant. I mean, my goodness, why do you think McDonald's put in Playlands? If your kids got to get their yayas out, throw them on the jungle gym, not in a restaurant chair. I, I mean, I, I tend to agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, as a parent who, for example, I mean, where we hear about this all the time is not a restaurant, is on a plane. You hear people complain about kids on planes all the time. And, you know, my kids generally, when we've flown when they were young were good, but you get, you know, ear popping and things like that. I, that's a, that's a different story, but still people get that's really, fr- story, but people Scott. get very, no, but story. people get very frustrated with crying kids on planes. I understand that, but you're right. In this particular case, there, there should be, I don't know if there is, there should be more capacity for control and for parenting and telling your kid to settle down. I just don't know how you even get away with it. I don't know how, if there's no criteria, I don't know as a restaurant how you are able to pull this off. Here, Here's one way. There are lots of restaurants that are high-end, consider themselves high-end restaurants that say, if you're going to be ch- bring your child, they must be eight or nine years old and up. And, you know, even if you've got a big kid, pretty much you can tell by their behavior how old they are most of the time. Now, if we're talking about, you know, you bring a newborn in and you're a young couple coming out and, you know, coming out for your first dinner in ages and the newborn starts crying, essentially what you do is what every parent does. You scoop up the kid and you, you know, take them out until they, you know, they start to console themselves. You don't leave the kid shrieking in the middle of the restaurant while you try and, you know, dig through your bouffe bourguignon. Yeah. Also on a plane, listen, of course you get ear popping and, and kids crying. You You absolutely expect that. But if your kid is eight years old and is kicking the back of my seat for two and a half hours, exactly. I kind of can't get into that either. Exactly. So yeah, there are times when you, as a parent, you commiserate and you know what a parent is going through. So if you're in a supermarket and the kid is just going off the chain, you know what that parent is going through. And maybe what I used to do is, you know, give them something, pull something off the shelves that was crunchy. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, their attention is absorbed into that. And that's where, you know, you can exercise, you know, empathy. But if you're a parent that just doesn't care, that is dismissive of everything else around them, so you can have a meal, not clean up and let your kids go haywire, I think there's a case to be made for that. Yeah. And I think that as long, I mean, as it's unclear how they actually do this. It sounds like at this restaurant, you just get your bill at the end and there's a charge on there or not. I would, I would be all for the idea of having someone at the restaurant if they've got the What's the word we can use? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> to go up and approach it. Cause you know, you, you approach a parent and you tell them you're not parenting well. Oh my goodness. You may be uh, asking for trouble, but if you would go, if the kids are misbehaving, you go up and say, look, this is not acceptable. We are going to be charging you if this doesn't change. I am totally on board with the idea then if they don't do something of having the charge, I would totally be fine with that. You know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you're a group of six or more that naturally takes the wait staff um, more work to do and to make sure that everybody's happy and gets however they want their meals served. And they offer and they actually um, automatically put on the gratuity, correct? Right. 
So this is the same sort of thing. And if a, and the restaurant has made abundantly clear that if you're going to bring your kids and they're going to misbehave, we're just going to put 50 bucks onto your bill. Yeah. And I would and be, I would have no problem, yeah. Elise, I would have no problem either if you wanted to have a belligerent jerk tax for adults who act like idiots too at a table. I would have no problem with that because it's not, I mean, I th- it's not I just I agree kids. with you, Scott, across the board. We've yep. got to come up with a new ta- a new name for this tax, uh, kind of like belligerent tax. Yeah, but the, if that was the case, I think that the servers, restaurant servers across North America would say that that would probably be seven out of 10 guests. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may well be. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR and Pop Culture X. We really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. That was a fun one, Scott. Thanks. Have you heard of the phrase sober curious? I mean, if you think about it, it's exactly what it sounds like. People who are maybe who were partiers before, maybe you still like to go out, but you know, I don't want them to go out and get hammered. I just want to go out and have a good time. Well, this is now leading to apparently fewer people. This is a growing trend, fewer people going out and drinking, but many of them, it seems still want kind of the experience without the experience. So major drink brands are now launching more and more non-alcoholic options to fulfill and fill this niche. Sarah Kate is the founder of Some Good Clean Fun, which is a website that covers and promotes non-alcoholic drinks and the alcohol-free lifestyle. She joins us now. Sarah, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you for doing this. It was sober curious was a, uh, was a new phrase to me today, but it, it, you know, it's pretty not difficult to figure out <laughs> what this means, but how That's surprising because I felt like, I feel like everybody now knows, you know, it's, it's always surprising to me that there are still people discovering that this is a thing. Well, I, look, I, I'm very aware that more and more people have been stepping away from alcohol. That's, that's been well-documented. I hadn't heard the phrase, but the idea behind okay. it is certainly well-established, I think. And why do you think, before we get into a lot of the stuff about it, why do you think this is? Is it just that people are trying to be more healthy? Have they grown tired of drinking all the time? Is there something else going on? What's the, what's the driving force here? I think there was a few things that happened. The first was COVID. I think a lot of people during the pandemic really leaned on drinking, you know, during the day to kind of, you know, pass the time. We were all bored and all of a sudden people started to realize, oh my God, this is not healthy for me. I don't feel good. Uh, you know, some people probably realize, oh, this is a bit addictive. I'm, you know, getting hooked on this. So there's that. I think people are trying to kind of swing back from that. But also there's a democratization of information now. Um, you know, more and more people are sharing information about what alcohol does to you and the, the health benefits. Um, and then there's also the the new regulations and guidelines in Canada. You, you know, the U.S. doesn't have that. Um, but definitely Gen Z also, they're they're growing up and they're or not growing up. They're, they're kind of coming into their own and saying, like, we really like self-care and wellness. We want to feel our best and they're watching their parents get trashed and and just be like, no thanks. (laughs) So I think those are the kind of driving forces. How much I've heard also, and I don't know if there's any truth to it. I've also heard that a lot of people are saying I will smoke cannabis rather than drink booze. Yeah. Yeah. There's been some studies um, and there's, there's some ongoing research into that, but I definitely um, I've heard that that is something that people are saying, you know, I feel better when I smoke weed or, um, you know, I, it's not as, I don't have much of a, as much of a hangover, certainly, um, you know, younger generations who have grown up with the legalization of cannabis, that's probably, you know, they're, they're experimenting more with that. Like for our, for my generation anyway, I feel like there's still that bit of a, a stigma around, um, around that. So we, I think it's, we're not reaching for it as much. I think it's a health driven thing at, at, uh, at older, with older generations. 
But if we've got this move going on, and, and I think there's no doubt that this move is going on, and yet we've got all these major drink brands that are now sort of creating it, and your website as well does, you know, brings up a lot of these sort of ideas of things you can do to have a drink without having a drink. If you don't want a drink, then why do you want to drink? Is it just, is it the social side of things or what keeps people now looking for alternatives rather than just simply saying, I'll go out and have a Coke? Does that sound exciting to you going out and having a Coke? I think that that's the, that's what I always ask people is, you know, we, I chose an alcohol-free lifestyle. I didn't um, hit rock bottom. I don't consider myself sober. I just, well, you know, for health reasons, I was like, I just really don't want to do this anymore, but I couldn't imagine a life going out to bars and restaurants and having fun with my friends or parties and only being able to drink a Diet Coke or a sparkling water or a coffee or, you know, going to a restaurant and not having elevated options, I guess. So I, my, my theory is that people just like me want an elevated option. So we feel like we're part of what is going on around us. We don't have FOMO. It allows us to have something exciting in our hand. It helps us to connect with others about, Oh, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Um, you know, women who, you know, women like me, who I loved having wine, you know, now there's great non-alcoholic wine options. So you can have a glass of non-alcoholic wine in a wine glass and you don't feel as much as the odd man out. If you're not drinking, it's not as obvious if you're in a group that you're, you know, just sipping on, on, you know, on sparkling water and nobody's asking you, are you pregnant? Why aren't you drinking today? So <laughs> I think there's a couple of like, you know, those are a couple of pretty good reasons. People want to feel like they fit in. They still want to be able to socialize and have something interesting to do that with. Okay. So to make that work though, and this goes to the idea of these companies that are coming out with new drinks, uh, I can remember, oh, I don't even know how long ago it was now when I think it was Molson came out with a non-alcoholic beer and I've mm -hmm. never consumed urine, but I imagine that what it might've been tasting <laughs> like. Uh, O'Doul's was out there and it was like, Ugh. and like, yes. are, are the, I now, and I see now that there's non-alcoholic tequila, non-alcoholic rum, non-alcoholic whiskey. That's like, right. Are That's the, right. Have we reached a point where at the very least these products are now consumable palatable. and palatable and enjoyable as opposed to simply saying, oh, I'm having the, you know, the tequila that's not really tequila just because and then you mm -hmm. squinch up your face and drink it because it's like drinking turpentine. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're at a point now where innovation is really pushing the boundaries of what tastes good without alcohol. What tastes has similar taste properties to what we enjoy in alcohol, but without the, without the actual alcohol. And I mean, I liken it to the fact that we can have hamburgers now that taste like hamburger, but they're made from beans. Like, you know, there's things, there's additives, there's innovation happening in that space. And same with non-alcoholic drinks. There's the beer is incredible. I mean, the beer has come a really long way. I hope from so. Grandpa's O'Doul's. <laughs> like, don't, O'Doul's is like, you know, grandpa's six pack of non-alcoholic beer. And now you've got these amazing brands. Like there's a Canadian brand Libra and they just, they make a hazy IPA. That's just the bomb. And, you know, there's all these great breweries out in the West coast in Vancouver and Victoria that are making, you know, one-off non-alcoholic IPAs, for instance, it's just fantastic that the beer world, the, the, the spirits world, it takes some getting used to because everybody wants it to burn like tequila. And they taste a, they taste a non-alcoholic tequila, which is meant to be mixed in a cocktail, not to be drunk straight. 
and they think, what is this? Like what, it, it, there's something's missing. Yeah. The alcohol's missing. <laughs> so you're getting like the things like the agave and the heat that you get in a mezcal, the dirty, the dirty blue, like uh, smoky heat uh, in a mezcal, you'll get that in your non-alcoholic tequila. You're not going to get a burn from the alcohol. The burn's going to come from like some sort of uh, chili pepper or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, it takes some getting used to, and there are people who are going to try it and say, ew, this is disgusting. But there are people like me who are like, wow, I can't believe this. I can make a mar margarita and it tastes like 98% like a real margarita. And that's, that's fascinating to me. Well, and Sarah, we got to run, but let, let's say one other thing too, is when you say, oh, that's disgusting. I'm sure, in fact, I know this to be true. I think that many people, it, you know, booze was an acquired taste in the first place anyway. Yes. They'd, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, when they say, oh, it's disgusting, this new tequila doesn't taste like what I expected. Yeah. The first few times you drank tequila, you were probably saying this is not, yes. you may not have yeah. said it out loud because you had to be cool yeah. with your friends, but <laughs> you were not exactly thinking, wow, this is the most delicious thing ever. So. Yeah. Touche, Scott. There you go. Uh, that is Sarah Kate. She is founder of Some Good Clean Fun, which uh, you can look up online, uh, promotes non-alcoholic drinks and the alcohol-free lifestyle. Sarah, really appreciate it today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Have a good afternoon. You as well. Union that represents HSR workers has urged its members to vote to reject the city's last offer. It's what the city says is its last offer. And if that happens... They will vote on that on November the 5th. If that happens, there will be 72 hours notice given if it is rejected. And then we could be looking at a transit strike here in Hamilton. But how does this whole thing play out and how do we get here and, uh, and all that kind of stuff? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the Degroot School of Business joins us now. It's been a while. Marvin, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Excellent. Thanks for doing this. So first of all, should we be at all surprised that the, we don't know exactly what the offer from the city is. The union has said that wages, it's, it's just not nearly good enough. When the city gave up to 15% increases over two parts to its non-unionized workers and then gave 13%, I believe over four years to its unionized workers. Should we be at all surprised that the labor, the uh, transit union is looking for some of that money too? No, the short answer to that is no, they shouldn't be surprised. Now, uh, we actually do know what the city offered the transit union, and it was very similar to your last proposal. It's 3.25% per year for four years, or another way of saying that, 13% over four years. The head of the union has said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, last year, inflation got up close to 8%. This year, it's still tracking at close to 4% you know, we're not catching up here at all. So get serious, get serious if you want us to be there. So they're not really saying no to years two, three, and four. In fact, I could argue that years two, three, and four are a little on the generous side, but they're looking at year one and they were specifically looking at catch up. And then you're absolutely right. They hold the city's words against them. If your non-union people deserve to catch up in some cases as much as 10% in the first year, What's wrong with us? So it's no surprise that the union's not recommending they endorse it. I will say it is a surprise that they're waiting to hold the vote until November the 5th, because that's more than a week away. That's on a Sunday. So it's a week from this coming Sunday. Uh, neither side is looking to shut down the transit service. So the union will not strike in the meantime. The city is not going to lock them out. I just don't know why they couldn't vote, for instance, this Sunday on the, I think that would be the 29th of October. And, and if they're not going to approve it, let's get that out there now. And then let's get talking about the next offer. 
the, everything leads to something else. The dominoes fall in these cases. If we were to see, let's say the city comes back with another offer, a more generous offer, even with the one that has been provided, that money has to come from somewhere. And so either we have only two options in the city, as I see it, that either taxes go up to cover more uh, ridership, more public transit, or the fees, the fares have to go up to cover that. And if the fares go up, there's a risk then that the ridership goes down because fewer people are going to be riding. And then if ridership goes down, we have to find new, I mean, it, I'm not suggesting that people don't deserve raises and increases in their pay. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But these right. things do have spin-off tentacles that affect a whole lot of other things. Well, uh, again, if you don't mind, I, I can come at that in two different ways. Uh, the first is that historically, historically, uh, transit fares have gone up. And yes, we have lost riders, but we don't lose as many riders as the fares go up. So there is a net gain in revenue for the system. And the reason for that, sorry to do an economics 101 lecture. Oh, I'm all here, good with it, always. But uh, we call this an inelastic good. In other words, those people who need to use transit, they're not happy about paying more, but they will pay more. It's a bit like other people who drive cars will complain about price of gas going up but they still buy the gas and they still drive the cars. Now, having said that to you, it's not clear to me, and I'm not, look, I'm not blaming anybody here either, but I thought the big sticking point in this agreement was not economic, but a question about who gets to run the LRT. Right, correct. Now, this is a four-year deal. The LRT will not be done by the time it ends, but they wanted to nail that down in this deal that ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, workers would be the one who would be running the LRT. And there was been no mention on either side about that issue. So it's possible it's been parked and this issue is all going to be about economics, but I don't, I don't know why we haven't heard anything about it. It is public transit though, has become a very interesting situation because since COVID there are in most cities, including I believe Hamilton, you know, still, there's still vacancies downtown. Uh, numbers have struggled in a lot of places and you know, it's, there's questions in a lot of places about how this works. Is there a, is there margin there to really grow private or public transit back to where it was, or even much, much bigger? This is a, th th I mean, am I, am I missing something or is this still, uh, have anything changed in the last six months or is this still one of those areas that, boy, there's an awful lot of stuff that we don't know about where the future holds for this? Yeah, well, again, you're absolutely correct. Nothing has really changed. Uh, uh, we, we are committed, apparently. We are all committed to building LRT. And we just saw today, for instance, in the Hamilton Spectator, or yesterday, I guess it was, a story about finding some long-lost tracks yes. from the old old transit cars that we had here. Uh, so, you know, they, they've clearly started to do a little digging, but uh, it's still going to take a while. And of course, again, the theory is that if you have the LRT running on a lovely smooth schedule, getting you to an all day go transit, maybe every 15 minute go transit, that ridership would go up. Uh, so I, I think that still remains plan A, but we're, we're just not sure about it. And uh, certainly my own research has shown over and over again that when you talk to people who ride transit, many of them would love to take a car if they could. They, they don't really like having their gov life governed by somebody else's schedule, but either they can't afford to have one or they perhaps are of a certain age where it makes it difficult to drive or they might have some other physical challenges that makes it difficult to drive. So again, the people who are on transit don't have much choice. 
we would like to see that perhaps the future is more people voluntarily moving to transit, but none of that's happening at the moment. None of that takes away from the fact that drivers deserve uh, good wages. So if I was the city, I might be tempted to sweeten year one of the deal, but I wouldn't want to do years two, three, and four, because again, the Bank of Canada is trying to bring inflation down to 2%. So a 3% or three and a quarter percent offer in third year could be well above the rate of inflation, don't necessarily want to get into that ballgame. So I think if there's going to be a movement, it'll only be in the first year. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be with you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's the 10th anniversary of the mobile cancer screening coach, Hamilton Health Science. This is a... Well, exactly as it's described, a mobile cancer center, screening center that travels around and people can come and get tested and it's got to have an impact. Uh, Neil Johnson is vice president of oncology for Hamilton Health Sciences and regional vice president for the Hamilton Niagara Haldeman Brandt Cancer Program joins us now. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time today. Oh, I appreciate it, Scott. I hope you're doing well. I hope your listeners are doing well, too, and a great day. Well, what, tell me about this. I, I don't know if there's a way to number, to categorize, or keep track of numbers, but it, it, do you have any way of determining how many people have been impacted by this? Not just the number of people who have been into the coach to be screened, but how many people have had a cancer that's been discovered they didn't know about, or is there any way to categorize that? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, you know, overall in the 10 years that the coach has been in operation, just for your listeners, this is a this is a big bus, like a Metrolinx bus that you would see. Um, and it's been outfitted with um, mammography unit. We have examination tables for uh, people who are going to get pap smears and we hand out all sorts of screening kits and we can give you cancer screening uh, or cancer um, risk assessments and all sorts of stuff. So it's really neat. But, um, you know, in the last 10 years, including COVID, which we had to shut down for a period of time, you know, we've done over 10,000 screening tests. And so that includes about 60,000, or sorry, 6,000 uh, mammograms, about 3,000 pap smears, and then another, say, 3,600 getting the sort of take-home uh, colorectal cancer screening kits. And, you know, our cancer detection rate, at least for breast cancer with those patients, is quite high. So, you know... Um, almost 11 out of 1,000 people who are screened, so 60 or 70 people of those 5,800 people um, were found to have cancer. They wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't have been diagnosed um, until far later in their diagnose, in their disease course if they had not been in the coach. And we know that we can offer far more treatments when we catch cancer early, particularly breast cancer. And so, yeah, that's a, some of the numbers that are there, um, and uh, it's really impressive. Why do we need this? I mean, why, why not just have people go to the hospital or a clinic to get the test? What is the, what is the advantage of the coach? Yeah, no, and that's, that's again, uh, a great question. You know, most of healthcare, um, and it's not just Ontario, but it's Canada, it's the U.S., it's the developed world, really um, has people coming to, can coming to care locations. So they come to a hospital, a clinic, or what have you, right? And so, it doesn't, uh, the way we've designed healthcare doesn't take into account that some people actually just can't get there. Some people don't have, you know, enough money to get a bus fare to get up to the Jurovinsky or to get to the Jurovinsky. Some people may live in a rural environment and if they don't have a car, they can't get there. 
some people may have um, an addiction or a mental health issue, or they may uh, feel threatened about going into a big hospital, right? And there's lots of different reasons for that. And for those people, they just don't access healthcare, plain and simple. They don't get the types of services that you and I have come to enjoy and expect and even criticize from time to time because it could be better. And so, you know, I think back in the day, and, and I've only been in the role for about two years now, but uh, the visionaries who put this forward 10 years ago said, you know what, we can actually take this care to areas that we know don't get the care. And we can map out those areas with um, our mapping tools to find out who doesn't get screened. And so let's take the screening to patients, to people, citizens, and our friends or relatives, neighbors or whatever, right? Let's, let's take it to them. And, and that's why it makes such a big difference. You know, um, just very briefly, um, you know, equity of healthcare access or access to healthcare resources is one of the biggest issues facing us now in healthcare. And I, I, I put this in terms of a single risk issue, probably equal to, or maybe even worse than uh, tobacco for cancer, right? It's the next tobacco. How can we make sure that people who get, uh, who, who can't get the care do get the care? It, I mean, it almost, it almost sounds like a third world tool because I mean, there, there are places and, you know, I've talked to a number of doctors who have worked uh, over there and, you know, people again, don't have a car, don't have a motorcycle, don't have any way to get there. And so they, the doctors go to them. It, it's not, but it almost sounds like it's kind of from the same theory. Well, you know, I think the reality is that while we live in Canada and we're very fortunate to live in Canada, it's a great country, but of course with all the people in Canada, there's a certain segment of our population just by demographics and numbers who don't have as much as you or I would. We don't have the, they don't have the means or they might yeah. have, as I said, a disability or something to encumber them. So I'm not sure whether we'd call it third world, but um, you know, there's lots of people who have challenges in life and this is flipping our care um, thought process on its head and saying, you know, um, they can't access it. So let's bring it to them. Like, let's make it easier for them. And I think, this is going to be the biggest struggle for healthcare in the next uh, decade or so is how do we make it easier for people to access healthcare? Because um, for many people in our society, the current healthcare system just doesn't work for them. We got to go, but um, why do we have only one then? I mean, has there ever been a thought that, you know, we not just that, I don't even just mean for this, if we can do screening for cancer, could we have other coaches, other buses that would go around and do other things with other tools in them? I, I, I think so, for sure. I know um, the other big area is up in the north and uh, Thunder Bay, they have a coach. Uh, of course, it's a different thing there because it's a uh, vast geography and so forth. They can only run it seven months a year because of weather. I know uh, they're in discussions in Sudbury to do the same thing. But hey, look, we delivered COVID vaccines with uh, Metrolinx buses as well, too, right? So yeah, I think this is I think this is just the tipping point. And we have calls from other centers across Ontario on a regular basis saying, you know, how can we do this, right? It's not easy uh, to run a bus and so forth. It's a different thing than running a hospital or a clinic. But yeah, I, I think it's, I think it has promise for lots of different things. That is Neil Johnson. He is the Vice President of Oncology for Hamilton Health Sciences. Really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. All right. Take care. Uh, look around, I guess, uh, you know, I should have said before, before we go, but look around, if you need that kind of treatment, if you are unable to get to a hospital or whatever, look for, look online, look, find out where that bus is, where the coach is. Um, it is called the Hamilton Health Sciences Mobile Cancer Screening Coach, and maybe you can be, get some help that way. Whatever it takes to make sure that you find 
these things early if they are going to hit. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. For 156 years, we in this country, if you are someone who is in the world of politics and you become an MP and you are going to serve your country, you have had a requirement to swear an oath to the king or the queen. And you can't go and you can't sit and you can't do your job until you do that. Well, now a an MP has brought forward an amendment or a motion, a bill to try and quash that. Make it so that we do not have to, we politicians do not have, Canadian politicians do not have to do this anymore. Is this a forward thinking good idea or is this defeating or undoing part of our system of government and is this a move that we maybe shouldn't be doing? Let's bring in Sam Rowley. He's a PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario, uh, who has written for many, many, many places, uh, joins us now. Sam, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is an interesting one because so many people would say, you know, what, what does it really matter? I mean, honestly, if you, as long as you, you know, if you go to court, you don't have to swear on a Bible. Now you can swear on whatever. It doesn't, so as long as you're willing to say, I promise that I will do my best, what difference does it make who I swear that allegiance to? On the other hand, we do have a system of government that still is a constitutional monarchy. So we do have a leader that is the king right now. What, what is the answer to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right in the sense that um, this is mostly a, a sort of symbolic change. Um, and it sort of uh, ties into a lot of these uh, conversations that we've been having over, you know, ever since King Charles kind of took the throne of, um, you know, what really is our um, connection to the monarchy. And I think also given the fact that it's purely symbolic, uh, you haven't really seen any of this sort of decisive action by by really any other, by either side. The, okay, so I, I don't know that our entire system of governance falls apart if we, if we suddenly don't have our politicians swearing an oath to the king. Uh, is there, there's no, there's no, is there anything built into our system that would, would be problematic if we change this? Is there anything that for some reason would all of a sudden fall apart? Yeah, I mean, well, well, broadly, I mean, the entire sort of Canadian constitution, the entire sort of Canadian legal system is grounded on on this notion of kind of royal prerogatives, um, that, that sort of authority, um, sovereignty flows down from the, from the monarchy. But I mean, when it comes to this change, I mean, not really. I mean, it's mostly cosmetic. Um, the, the real change is that, you know, while the king's name isn't mentioned, Specifically, um, you know, MPs are still kind of swearing allegiance. Not, I don't know if that's precisely the right way to put it, but they're, but they're, um, but they're, they're, they're swearing to uphold the constitution. And given the importance of the monarchy to the constitution, um, they're still sort of swearing an allegiance to the king, sort of indirectly. Um, although, you know, perhaps the fact that the monarch, the monarch isn't kind of brought up. Uh, personally, might might sort of change things, at least on a symbolic level. D- does um, this would not though require us that like we could theoretically we could disentangle simply swearing uh, allegiance to the monarch, but keep the system of government that we have in place? Could we not? There's, I mean, with the way it's written, that wouldn't change anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely is is. 
that's, it seems like that's the direction um, that a lot of people are going in the sense that the, the sort of process of actually fully untangling Canada from a connection, from its connection to the monarchy is sort of way too intensive. Uh, it requires the sort of consent of all the provinces, for example. Um, so given that, given the fact that there is no real political appetite to do that, um, you see a lot of moves to kind of do these more um, cosmetic or symbolic changes, right? That even though even though we're sort of formally still connected to the monarchy, even though sort of the formal conditions aren't necessarily changed, um, the sort of sort of day-to-day expression of it is 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 relatively hidden. And I mean, this includes the fact, for example, that the um, like the federal government is also considering um, not including you know the monarchy and, and citizenship uh, ceremonies too, for example. So it's definitely um, kind of part of this this perhaps bigger process that might make the monarchy somewhat, you know, hidden from, from direct view. And see, that's what I really wondered about whether is this, I don't think this is intent. I don't know what the MP's ultimate uh, goal is on this, but is this seen as well, if this were to pass, it would be the first step towards something. Or do you think that, no, if this were to pass, it's just this and that's where it ends because it's just so complicated to otherwise untangle the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a bit of both, um, in the sense that I think there is certain, I think there's a number of people in Canada who, uh, don't see the uh, usefulness or the legitimacy of the of the connection to the monarchy and their sort of their their project their ultimate goal is to disentangle it um, but given the fact that you know at least for the immediate future it's it's near impossible to actually accomplish that on a formal level um, they'd sort of resign themselves in a way to kind of making these more minor changes um, and perhaps over the next couple of years right you'll see kind of Perhaps one one after another will kind of follow uh, to the point where um, it'll sort of pick up this this momentum where uh, enough people will sort of finally decide to to uh, sort of embark upon that formal change. But I mean, given the fact that again, um, it's very hard to you know as as I think we all know, right? It's very hard to find consensus. Um, in this country, and and I and I don't think you're really going to have it there. Sam Routley uh, from Western University. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking a couple hours ago here on the show about the possibility of a an HSR strike coming up in a few weeks as of November. Well, they could turn down the city's last, allegedly last offer on November the 5th. Then by November 7th, we could be looking at an HSR strike in the city. Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, joins us now. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. Really appreciate you taking the time here. It's... um. Where are we now? We last I heard the issue that I heard reported was that wages and and pay was the number one thing right now that was the the holding point. Is that correct? 
Yes, that that's the uh, as uh, any negotiations, it comes down to money in the end, and that's where we're at. Uh, that's where the biggest dispute is. Well, when you say any negotiation, the reason I ask that question is because clearly, I mean, you're right. Everybody is going to want more pay, so that's not that's not a surprise. But the issue of the LRT, who's going to run the LRT had been on the table or at least part of the discussions and all of a sudden that was gone. Was that resolved or has that been put off for a while or where does that stand? So as you know, we, we currently have language in our contract. We were trying to strengthen some of that language uh, just out of an abundance of caution. But in the end, uh, our legal advice is that we do have good language on that. And uh, so we decided to move off that issue. Uh, we know ultimately that issue is going to be taken up with the provincial government and we're preparing for that fight. Okay. So that, that, that's a belief that, that when that time comes, that there is some assurances that you guys will be the group that is running HS or LRT. Correct. Okay. Uh, now it was interesting. We were talking, as I say, about an hour and a half or so ago with Marvin Ryder about the possibility of a strike and he raised a really interesting question and it hadn't dawned on me really, but I'm going to ask you this. He said, look, what's the reason? And he wasn't sure why a strike vote wouldn't happen this weekend. Cause theoretically it could, you could have a strike vote almost anytime you want now. Why put it off for another week? What's the reason for the longer time before having that vote? Correct. So we, we wanted to allow city council time to reflect on the decision. We know that the uh, the negotiators at the table aren't really making the decision. They're giving their marching orders from city council. So we did want to allow some time for council to reconsider their, their position uh, and also to prepare the public. You know, uh, our passengers are important to us. We want to make sure they have lots of notice uh, ahead of time and to allow them to call their counselors and, and ask the council to, to get us a fair deal. Any part of the time frame on this to make it closer to the Grey Cups to put more pressure on the city? Because the one thing the city's not going to want is to have an HSR strike during a Grey Cup festival. So the reality is we, uh, we are coming up on the Grey Cup. Uh, that certainly was part of our, our thought, uh, you know, if you're going to go out on strike, you want to apply as much pressure as possible. It's not just the Grey Cup, though. you got to realize uh, our contract normally is up uh, in December uh, of last year. We often go, you know, six months, eight months beyond that, uh, simply because the, the city doesn't want to talk while they're uh, out there campaigning door to door. So they picked the prime time for our contract to be up. They, they stick to that four-year election cycle. And so if you're going to be a union and pick uh, the proper time, you're going to pick the time that's going to be most effective. Uh, it's not just the Grey Cup. You know, we're coming up on Christmas season. We, ca- we carry a lot of uh, people to, to different businesses for, for work. And uh, you also have your students in school and the Christmas uh, economy is starting to, to brew. So now is the time for us to apply the most pressure and, um, supply and demand. When you're most in demand is when you're going to take your action. Well, Eric, I'm sure you've also, uh, you're a bit of a historian as far as how this has worked before. And back in 1996, I believe it was, there was an HSR strike or the threat of one right before the Grey Cup. And that worked out very well for the union when the settlement came in that one finally. Yes, I, uh, I actually was on the picket line in 96. Uh, I was also on the picket line in 98 when we were out there for 10 weeks. So it can go either way. The reality is, um, 
you know, the city, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Scott, gave its non-union staff about 1,100 of them, uh, all earning between the average wage of 120 and $160,000 a year. They all got a 4% increase plus a market adjustment of up to 11%. Um, we're at the table and we're not as greedy as that. <laughs> we're, we're not expecting that kind of raise, but we do expect the 4% uh, to keep pace with inflation. And we do expect to be able to get a market adjustment uh, when you consider the fact of the increase in the cost of housing, food, and fuel, um, and simply to keep pace with the inflation that we've lost over the last couple of years, we actually lost about 7% in real wages. And how far away from that 4% and the adjustment are you? So the uh, current offer, if you average it out over the four years, is about 3.2%. Okay. And that, and that would not include any adjustments. So it would actually be looking for a little more. I mean, it's, the gap is a little bigger than just that 0.8 by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Yes, it is. That is, uh, that is Eric Tuck. He is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. Eric, always appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Well, the provincial government has been rolling back some of its decisions over the last little while, green belt at the top of the list. But my next guest, I came up with another suggestion. He was like, well, if you're going to be taking back certain things you did, how about the strong mayor powers that were given to our mayors in big cities around the city. His name is John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Joins us now. John, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Scott. Appreciate you doing this. This is, uh, I was wondering when, um, how long it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be you or whoever else, but I was wondering how long till people started to say, I'm not really sure about this strong mayor thing. Well, uh, you know, the mayor or the uh, premier, uh, Anytime he's been asked about this move, he always said it was tied to the housing agenda. So the the two key pieces of the housing agenda were obviously the green belt, uh, allowing expansion into the green belt, and then allowing urban boundaries to be expanded. And uh, he he's always said that the strong mayor was in support of that, and uh, both of those have obviously been reversed. And so now we're into a situation where we have a strong mayor who, if you look at Hamilton, it would take 11 out of 15 of the council votes to uh, offset the mayor. And it's even worse in Burlington, where they only have a six-person council, and it would take five five votes there. And, you know, we, we had a system back when we had boards of control. It, it did take a, a two-thirds majority of council to uh, outrule the board of control. But at least in, you know, so the Board of Control became kind of an executive committee. The difference, though, was that the Board of Control had five, four or five people on it. We're now putting all of that power into one individual. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm not speaking against uh, the, the actual individuals necessarily or suggesting uh, that, you know, there's anything wrong with uh, them at least at this point, but it's a lot of power to put in one set of hands. And it kind of begs the question is why are we voting? Uh, I mean, participation in municipal elections is already terrible. So why would we make it even harder for people to feel like they have direct control over their, over their council or, or the councillors that they do have control over uh, are somewhat powerless. You know, I, I've been interested to see how this is going to be used because there is certainly, I'm sure for some of the mayors who are out there, a really, 
uh, enticing idea that they can have more power. I'm sure for some of them, it's really kind of tempting. And yet we were talking on the show earlier and I made the comment that, you know, that's great until one of the decisions that you make or you push through as strong mayor doesn't go well. And then you have no one to hide behind. You're on the hook for this and that could technically cost you your spot. So I've been wondering if, if many of the people who have these powers are actually wanting to use them. Well, when, when it was first announced, uh, certainly uh, they all played coy and said, well, I'm not sure we need it. Uh, however, they seem to have managed to adjust to the new reality. And uh, I really worry about a community like, like Burlington, for instance, that has no media whatsoever other than uh, social media. Uh, you've got this tiny council that it's so easy to corral them all into one direction. And now you got a strong mayor system and it's going to, and you know, whatever they do, we're going to have to live with for the next three years. But even in Hamilton, you know, I was thinking about the politics of this. When, when Ford dreamed up this idea, did he think that he'd be dealing with Olivia Chow in Toronto <laughs> and the former leader of the NDP here in Hamilton? I don't think that was in his mind. He thought he was going to be dealing with John Tory in Toronto, a former conservative leader. And, and I don't know what he thought about Hamilton, but it seems to me that when he dreamed up this idea that he was expecting a different outcome. I suspect that you're probably right. And that said, uh, I've, I think a lot of people in this city have been perhaps a little bit surprised and I don't know if it, if it, they should have been surprised, but you know, Andrea Horvath came into power as mayor of the city of Hamilton, coming from the NDP, coming from a party that's always, you know, called the socialist or way left NDP. Andrea Horvath has not operated as a way left wing mayor at all. No, she hasn't. And I was watching yesterday's council meeting and she actually scolded some of the scolds. So I was quite surprised about that. No, you're absolutely right. She has tried to uh, tread a uh, a fairly central line, uh, trying to keep, uh, you know, a, a moderate position within council. Uh, she chided a couple of her colleagues yesterday of the progressive group who were going after Tom Jackson and um, Brad Clark because they were complaining about this e-bike thing that you and I talked about last week. And And she sort of interjected and said, you know, we can't be constantly uh, personalizing this and and imputing motives to people and uh, it was uh, it was a nice gesture on her part i thought well it, it yes and also as i say I, I i've heard from many people and not directly whether it's online or directly uh the idea that oh you know what it's the uh, council is going to go way left because andrea is going to lead it there and so, as I say, I, I think that there are probably an awful lot of people around the city that thought there was going to be something different. Now, here's the question, John, she got elected because people, more people wanted her than the alternative. Is it helping her that she is being more centrist than some people might've expected? Or the fact that more people voted for her, did they expect her to be more left-wing? Is it hurting her that she's not being more of what they thought she was going to be? I think it's going to help her because this council has just gone crazy, uh, you know, with spending uh, yesterday, a prime example, they, they uh, ratified the 750,000 for the e-bikes and uh, Councillor Clark had to practically beg to get $625,000 for emergency money for the food banks. 
So, you know, at the same time that the food banks are in a terrible crisis, we're, we're still fooling around with this other stuff. So I think if she if she can stick to this kind of centrist role and, and the real proof will come, she does control the budget. It, it will take 11 councillors to knock her out on the budget. And if she will see what that budget looks like, because right now it's heading for 14 percent and uh, and maybe more, because it seems like every time there's a council meeting, there's more money and more staff added to the complement. So she's she's got a, a very, very busy fall and early spring ahead of her. Uh, trying to make this budget make sense. And that's where I go back to those strong mayor powers. So if, if, if people think, and, and I'll say this for her, if people think that she is going to, with her strong mayor powers, and as you say, needing 11 votes to topple her, come in and start spending like crazy, let's say it comes in at 13% even. That's, if she is the one who's driving that bus, that tax increase in the eyes of the public is her tax increase. There is no way she or any other mayor wants to have that on their resume. I don't care if it's the first year or second year or third year of their time. Nobody wants that kind of increase to be blamed on them. No, that's true. But she's already talked about going into the reserves, which means you can still spend the money, but uh, the tax increase isn't as great. So... We'll, we'll just have to watch that very carefully. Uh, she's got a, a real challenge ahead of her, I'd say, in the next six months. No question. Uh, absolutely right. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Good, Scott. Thanks. That is uh, that is something to watch, though, for sure, because this uh, we, we have not lost track of the fact that that 14% preliminary number for the budget is out there. We've, uh, haven't talked about it much in the last couple of weeks, but, uh, as I say, has not gone anywhere. We are, we are on top of that one because we understand we live here too. The, if council comes back with a 14 or 12 or even 13, whatever percent tax increase, uh, these are not going to be happy days in the great city of Hamilton, Ontario. <laughs> they will not be happy days. Let's put it that way. Tom's been doing all the work today. I just talk. He's been doing all the heavy lifting. And Tom uh, is a younger man than I am, more close to his high school years than me. So my question is this, do they still do hands-on science experiments in class? Do you ever have to dissect a fetal pig or do any kind of like experiments stuff, like real experiments? Well, I mean, I am closer to high school than you, but it's also been a, it's a solid couple years since high school. I will say this much. The last time I took science was grade 10. So this would have been like 11 years ago. Okay. Um, and, and did they do experiments? We did dissect a frog. Okay. So, so they were still doing that stuff. Okay. Cause the reason I asked that is I read this story and, um, it made me laugh very, very hard. Not because it's, it's totally gross. I warn you ahead of time. It's entirely disgusting, but this is so high school science class. This is high school science to the nth degree, at least it was when I was there, because maybe I, maybe I didn't take science all that seriously. There's a reason I'm doing this, not operating on brains somewhere. I, uh, I just did not. Thank God for that. Yeah, I did not put in, I guess, all the effort <laughs> that I could have into the world of science, but there was, um, they were dissecting, uh, rats in their classroom. Now, every animal, no matter how large or small, humans down to whatever, we have all have very large, long intestines. You start untangling the intestines. There's a lot packed in there. 
Mm-hmm. So they were dissecting these people in this class. The teacher had stepped out of the classroom in a bad move. Any teacher that leaves a classroom oh, no. during a dissection oh, no. is asking for trouble. Anyway, these two students who were dissecting the rat extracted the rat intestine and decided to jump rope with it. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Of course, created great hilarity among all the kids in the class until the intestines split and sent fecal material splashing all over the classroom. (laughs) Oh no. And and I got thinking, you know, this is not far off what we were doing in high school back in the day. Now I expect that, you know, today it's much more reined in, but we had a very favorite teacher back in the day. And when I say favorite, my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. She was not really our favorite. I won't say her name because I, you know, who knows if she's listening or out there still, but, um, we were dissecting fetal pigs. And by the, when we were done, we thought, Hey, we've got a really funny idea. So we cut off its head and its front two hooves. Oh no. And then when she left her classroom, we put it in the top drawer of her desk. So when she pulled open the drawer, it looked like there was a pig trying to climb through the bottom. Jeez, Scott. (laughs) That is some mob boss stuff right there, Scott. You know, in retrospect, it kind of was. We didn't think of it. (laughs) That's the equivalent of putting- uh, Of the horse head in the bed. The horse head in the bed. Yeah, exactly. We didn't, see, we didn't picture it that way at the time. It was more hilarious. It was not meant to be- You're in high school. It was not meant to be- threatening, but it was, uh, I see your point. It probably, it probably <laughs> was slightly upsetting. In fact, I know it was upsetting because she screamed and ran out of the class. <laughs> um, but yes, the other one, the other one that we did that was, uh, and I'm sure everybody has done this. There's always one person in class because I'm guessing that still to this day, at some point in high school, most science classes require you to, and maybe they don't, I don't know, maybe this is no longer allowed, but we had to bring in uh, a, a little jar of our own urine to do with the little dipper things to test for stuff. So you had to, you know, they said, bring in with a screw on lid, bring in a little sample of your own. We're going to test for diabetes, blood sugar, all that kind of stuff that you do. Again, probably people aren't bringing their own pee to school anymore. That, that may be old school. But anyway, um, my friend Ken, uh, as was the case, brings his in. And while the teacher is talking, unscrews the lid and then begins to drink it. <laughs> which was apple juice, of course, but okay. nonetheless, for about that first two or three seconds, the gasps across the classroom, the absolute gasps of horror as that was happening was, uh, was, it was worth it all. We remember these things. It's a long time ago now in high school. I remember that there are other ones too. My, my grade seven, we got to go my grade seven science project. There's no way in a million years you could do this one anymore. I had to go to get my dad to go to the grocery store and buy me cigarettes for this one. Really? And I got an old clear bottle of uh, dishwashing soap and you pop the little top thing out of there, put some cotton balls inside and stuff the cigarette in the top and light it and then just puff it to see how much stuff got on the cotton balls, how black they got. Whoa. Okay. It was a really cool experiment. I was yeah. very proud of myself. The only problem was it was quickly noticed that, that pack of cigarettes, I could only do like four cause all my friends kept saying, hey, give me a cigarette, give me a cigarette. I can't get a cigarette. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of ran out of cigarettes before too long. Um, 
Well, I will say, because we, 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 got, we got like, yeah, a minute here. Um, in my class, yeah, there was a lot of shenanigans going on because a lot of us did not, we're not a big fan of our teacher. Uh-huh. I will not name names here because she might be listening. Is um, one student for the frog dissection. Everybody spent the entire time like shouting and moaning and gagging because it smelled so bad. Naturally. But this kid is <laughs> a good friend of mine still. He decided... To have a bit of fun with the frog. Uh-oh. And he not only opened it up, he started like, he basically cut the frog in half up vertically to the point where the entire like bottom half of the frog was gone. So you could literally get, see the insides and you started like, jaw was gone, like the stomach was gone. The, the, it's not a pretty thing. No, it's it was not. It's not a pretty thing. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they still do that. I kind of thought that maybe... The whole thing about that would have gone away, but, um, Hey, there you go. Maybe, maybe let us know. Maybe they're still going on. I I thought that the dissections would have today, surely there's no school or no one has thought, Hey, maybe we shouldn't give the kids really sharp instruments to play around with in science class. But you know, maybe. I think think they might still do, but there's just twice the number of kids that are going, Oh God, it smells terrible. Yeah, they, they really do stink. I will give you that for sure. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Folks, thanks for listening. We'll be back at 3 o'clock tomorrow to wrap your week. Hope you have a wonderful evening. We'll talk to you soon. 